Hey, this is Ari Herstand, author of How to Make It in the New Music Business, third edition out now, and you're listening to your morning coffee podcast with my friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart, weekly music news for the new music business. From Billboard, the case for keeping music streaming prices where they are, which is a guest column by Russ Krupnik. From Music Business Worldwide, an Ed Sheeran stream is not worth the same as a stream of rain falling on a roof. Robert Kinsel says music streaming payout and pricing models must and will change. And from Billboard, Spotify pulled thousands of songs to fight fraud, not AI. Yes, AI. AI, AI, AI. We are still talking about AI. In the past, we have talked about AI. Today's present, we will talk about AI. And in the future, we are sure we're going to talk about AI because that is what is going on. Jay and I are here with you. Glad you are here. Let's get rolling with the podcast right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. I feel bad saying AI so much, Jay, but AI, AI, AI. Yeah. It's unbelievable eio yes and like you know we we have said in our saying just when you think you've you've kind of encapsulated the conversation new things new technologies come out um new business issues and it is man it is it is fast and furious yeah it really is um we're going to talk in a minute about a story that came late and it wasn't in your morning coffee um, about uh, Google's Music LM. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but before we jump in, just really quickly, um, super excited about the Music Business Association. The conference is in Nashville next week, uh, moderating a couple of panels, got some meetings set up. Really looking forward to uh, next week in Nashville. And you got to come with me next year. You know what? I really tried this year. Um... But I just couldn't work it out with my schedule. But I do want to get back there. It's been a while since I've been in Nashville. And I, that event is such a great one. And, you know, I did make it to, a back in the day, a couple of NARMs. And uh, I, I want to go. I really want to go. Yeah. So I, it's too bad yeah. it's not in L.A. Because I could have. that would have been a little bit easier. But we'll make it yeah. happen. Yeah. And, and it, it used to travel around, right? It, yeah. It's been in a whole bunch of different cities. and. Over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, it's really kind of camped out in Nashville. Um, The other thing I wanted to make sure we mention is that we have a couple of uh, bonus episodes that we're going to be dropping soon. Um, One is with uh, our friend Chris Castle, uh, music industry attorney, writer, advocate. Check out Music Technology Policy. Um, we had a really interesting conversation and we're going to be dropping that as a special episode kind of in between our regular, uh, weekly episodes. And then the one I kind of teased, uh, last week that's about to drop is, uh, Matt Vaughn from easy street talking about record store day and his relationship with, uh, Pearl jam and, you know, talking about when they played in his store. It's really, really amazing stuff. So watch for those special episodes kind of in between our regular Monday drops. Yes, we are. We are working on it right now and it'll be out there. So uh, and again, you know, with sometimes we just don't have enough time to have a full on with our audio drops. And so this is an opportunity to kind of 
get a little deeper dive yeah. on, on certain topics. But, you know, we were, of course, talking about AI at the beginning of, of the show, and we'll be going throughout this show and future shows. But, you know, in the, unfortunately, we're in the midst of a writer's strike right now. And listen to some mm. of these headlines. This is from Vanity Fair, writer's strike, why AI should be central in the flight, in the fight. Gosh, it's even better when I pronounce the words properly. Uh, from the LA Times, uh, th- this writer's strike and the rebellion Rebellion against AI from CNN. TV and film writers are fighting to save their jobs from AI. It is amazing uh, how AI is playing into this writer's strike, like everything. But it's a huge issue yeah. outside of music. It seems like it came. It seems like it came overnight. Like you know, a year ago, we really weren't talking much about AI. Just the occasional story. And now it's just everywhere you turn around, um, people are talking about it. And before we hit record, you and I were talking about this piece, you know, from Music Business Worldwide, where, um, well, the headline was Google trained experimental AI to generate high fidelity songs from text prompts. Now it's available to the public. And so this, this talks about... You know, well, back in January, Google unveiled this thing called Music LM. Um, it, it, it's experimental AI. It's a tool that can generate high fidelity music from not only text prompts like you would with Chat GPT, but but also just by humming. Like you can just sit there and hum a melody that's in your head, and it will produce a high quality song from what you were humming. It's mind blowing. So listen to this two-minute audio clip from a video titled Music LM Artist Workshop with AI Test Kitchen and Google Arts and Culture Lab. Check it out. So MusicLM builds on top of AudioLM, which is a broader audio generation algorithm. And what MusicLM does is taking this very powerful audio generation algorithm, train it on music data, and add specific controls for music creation, such as text, voice, melody conditioning, and so on. And Test Kitchen was launched last year at I.O. as an experimental way to get feedback on our newest technologies. But I love the, <laughs> yeah, how it, it speaks of a moment, you know, like that never existed, but you know, you feel like it could be also yeah, yeah. for the so lo-fi or the... At the Google Arts and Culture Lab, artists and technologists and engineers and researchers come together to experiment with emerging technologies and explore new ways to create, interact with and experience culture online. My name is Antoine Bertin. I'm a sound artist and composer. A composer or music creator is more of an intermediary between something that happens in, uh, in the world. So one way of doing this is through a process called data sonification and see what music emerged from that. I'm Simon Dory. I'm a creative coder at the Google Arts and Culture Lab. I think it's nice. You don't play the piano or the guitar, so you start prompting and you get an accompaniment, for example, if you are a drummer and you want something to play with, you can just type and uh, you have the music to play with. One of my first reactions is like in terms of the audio quality or the spontaneity or imagination with which it generates a, a piece of music. It's quite surprising, it just happens really fast and spontaneously. <laughs> and artists have always been known to use the tools that are available to them and push tools in unexpected and surprising ways. I see Music LM as an evolution of that. The most important is that for us it's used by artists in a way that is meaningful to them and can allow them to explore new ways of creating sounds. Wow, things are moving so fast. So Music LM is now available to the public to test out. Google explains that at the public use level, the tool works by typing in a prompt like uh, soulful jazz for dinner party, and then it will create that music for you. So the music LM model will then create two versions of the requested song for the person inputting the prompt. You can then vote on which one you prefer, which Google says will help improve the AI model. 
so the but this is which is the most interesting thing. The model was trained <laughs> on five million audio clips, amounting to two hundred and eighty thousand hours of music. Yeah, but that's that's a lot. But but as you and I keep asking the question, like whose music was used to train music LM? You know, they said that this is a quote from Google that they found only a tiny fraction of examples where it memorized exactly, you know, that that audio. So while for you know one percent of the examples could identify an, an approximate match. So it's being drawn off of music, I'm assuming, that's out there, that's on DSPs, that's on YouTube, wherever, you know, on, on the web. But that's somebody else's, you know, Stuff. words and music. Absolutely, absolutely. So we get right back around to... This sort of, you know, how do you how do you monetize if if you're a content owners, how do you monetize that when people are basically using your catalog in 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 the learning process of AI? And yeah. boy, oh boy, oh boy, that will be the battle. That will be the big right. challenges of figuring all that out. Yeah, because today there's software, you know, that teachers use to see if the students are, you know either using AI or they're using Wikipedia or, or whatever and plagiarism and on the music side. And we reported on this last week, there's software out there that's very um, accurate at identifying um, when copywritten music is used uh, in an AI generated track. But in that case, we were talking about maybe fake Drake or when they create a fake Beatles or Beach Boys or Queen song drawing from their catalogs. I guess my question, you know, for the AI experts, and we should probably ask Martin Clancy this, is if they're drawing um, from what you said, five million audio clips, which is 280,000 hours of music, and they're meshing it all together, can that software identify where it came from and would it be, Oh, this came from 400 different jazz, mm -hmm. uh, you know, yeah. albums. Right. And how do we, it, it just begs the question, how do we uh, respectfully monetize this and pay the rights holders? Yeah. So much to consider. And, um, yeah, it, it's, uh, we will continue to chat about it more than, more than most, I think, but it's, uh, it, it is a crazy yeah. time and it's fascinating as, as all this is kind of coming together quickly, very quickly. But Jay, before we get to all the other stuff, we got to thank the great folks that brings, that bring us to the party <laughs> and we are lucky. We are lucky guys to have the folks that, uh, that, that support our show. Yes, we sure are. And that starts off with HypeBot. You know, since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It's edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton. Thank you, Bruce. With help from Alana Bonilla, HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. You betcha. Bands in Town, over 74 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist service platform connecting over 560,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Yeah, and we want to thank Music Business Association. Um, I'll be speaking at the conference, as I mentioned, uh, next week. It's, it runs May 15th uh, through the 18th in Nashville. So if you can, join me and many others as we discuss the most important topics for this modern new music business. See the full agenda and register on their website, the Music Business Association. Indeed. Big thanks to Music Business Association, HypeBot, and Bands in Town, and the muchacho that I do this with every week, Jay Gilbert. He is one of the hardest working men in show business. He is, of course, a music business <laughs> consultant. He is the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with these little dinky companies, uh, Universal, Sony, and Warner Music Groups. 
and darn it, uh, thank a you, my passionate friend, and, uh, Vikings fan as well. As well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the schedule just came out, but I digress. Uh, the gentleman sitting across from me is Michael Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and where I met him at Universal Music Group. Back in the last century, Jay, if you can believe that. Hard yeah. to believe. Yes. Seems like only yesterday. Only yesterday. Well, let's jump into the stories, Jay. Really Please. great stuff, and I can hardly wait to start chatting about them. So the first story is, uh, as you mentioned, I think, or I mentioned at the top, the case for keeping music streaming prices where they are. It's a guest column by Russ Krupnik, and it kind of starts, you know, most labels and some technology companies think now is the time to raise streaming prices, but what if this is the wrong approach? And we have talked about this and all that's the time. A, yeah. And... It's a different view because most yeah. people we talk to or we report on are saying we need to raise these subscription prices. And uh, one of the things that you'll learn uh, from our special episode with Chris Castle is something that Russ is bringing up here. And that is that it's not as simple as just raising the rates and everybody you know makes more money. Uh, for years, uh, this is according to uh, Russ, uh, for years the major labels have been clamoring for streaming services to raise their subscription prices. The publicly stated position of leadership at Warner Music Group and Universal Music Group is that music is undervalued, in part due to artificially low subscription rates. Warner Music CEO Robert Kinsel was recently quoted as saying, we are the lowest cost form of entertainment. We have the highest engagement, highest form of affinity, and lowest per hour price. That doesn't seem right. Uh, he goes on, it should change in an orderly fashion. As I noted in an April Billboard article looking at both sides of the issue, it's astounding that I pay the same amount for my monthly streaming subscriptions as I did for Rhapsody, do you all remember Rhapsody? I'm, I am asking. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2003, between $9.99 and $10.99 per month. Although Apple and Amazon recently raised prices, even those prices fall below the Rhapsody benchmark of $9.99 per month set in the early aughts once adjusted for inflation. There's a strong case for price increases. But what if this thinking is wrong? Are there reasonable arguments for leaving prices where they are? Yeah, in the U.S., music streaming subscription penetration is relatively high at 41% of Internet users over the age of 13. That is high. Many who might subscribe have access through family plans while some share account logins. Overall, about 50% of Internet users have access to a paid on-demand subscription music service through direct payment, sharing, or trials. And that number is even higher if you include SiriusXM. Uh, these statistics are important for two reasons, he says. First, they demonstrate that there is more room to grow music subscription than the U.S. They also reveal an underlying demographic divide. The half without access to on-demand services are older, so 59% are over aged 44, less invested in music, and likely to be more price-sensitive than early adopters. Right. Uh, research that Music Watch conducted on the economy and music highlighted that younger fans are more stressed about their personal finance, uh, financial situations as well as inflation. So respected music analyst Mark Mulligan of Media Research noted that helping subscribers through difficult economic times might create goodwill for these audio services. And he, he might have a point, especially for the younger demographic who make up a large part of the current subscriber base. So he says we need to be clear about how this price argument might apply to different consumers. Would services raise prices for current subscribers who already rate the offer quite highly? What about new, subscri new subscribers? As pointed out earlier, there is still growth uh, to be had for subscriptions. In the U.S., trials are the primary feeders for paid subscriptions. According to Music Watch's annual music study released in March of this year, the likelihood of moving from a trial to a full paid subscription is slowing. The number one mm. reason tiers don't expect to convert is I'm watching my money more carefully due to inflation. Mm. For years, the main barrier to converting from a trial to a full subscription 
has been not using the service often enough. According to Music Watch surveys, subscribers to paid on-demand services spend 26% more time streaming music than people who are on a trial. They also consider music more important. That makes sense. They're nearly twice as likely to spend money on things like concert tickets, vinyl records, CDs, and merch. And keeping prices low could be more attractive to these potential subscribers now sampling the service through a trial. There's also a strong case to be made for increasing audio subscription prices, of course. Stagnant rate adjustments, high loyalty and usage, and outstanding value suggest that reasonable increases would meet modest resistance, if any at all. Those of us with long histories of paying for music subscriptions and passion for our favorite services are unlikely to churn out. Right. He says the question is not whether we can grow ARPU, um, average revenue per user, among current subscribers. It's whether the services can raise prices and continue to grow the subscriber base in the U.S., especially since that growth would come from later adopters who are older and less committed to music. There are segments of music fans struggling to manage inflation. He says that may argue for maintaining low prices. It could also argue for a Sirius XM style strategy that combines low introductory prices with increases upon renewal. Whatever the argument, these questions should be resolved by testing, not proclamation. So Russ is the principal mm -hmm. uh, over at market research firm Music Watch. Well, it's certainly interesting yeah. to have that conversation. And, you know, but it, it got me to thinking, too, is, you know, what is the... What is the realistic expectation of how high you can get that percentage of internet users that are subscribers? I don't know the answer, um, but you know he yeah. kind of touches on this, which is you know at some point you're talking, you know as you get that higher and higher percentage of, of internet users that are subscribers, the, the remaining people are less and less interested in music, and. You know, or they would have been there. Or they would have been there in the first yeah. place. So, you know, what is our yeah. realistic expectation of, of what the most percentage we could get for for subscriptions? And and yeah. then and then kind of figure out the dollars and cents. So I, I it's an it's an interesting question. I don't know the answer, but you know, we yeah. we both know just people that are they like music, but they're just not they're not invested in music. Not passionate no. about it like we are, Yeah, maybe. And the other thing he brought up, um, which I really hadn't considered much, is the economy. And you had talked about that when it comes to video um, services, that you'll pop in and out of them, mm -hmm. depending on you know what they have and what you know the, the economy's doing. Um, and I hadn't really thought about that with the audio side, because I'd, you know, I'll give up eating before I'll give up my music. Um, right. But, you know, the economy does play an important role there, too, for most people. But I still come back to what, what this, based on, again, my only, you know, my family and friends and people that I observe, they will juggle the video stuff, but they have a single music service. And that is really stable. And I think it's going to be not hard, but I think most people will leave that alone, even with price increases. Yeah, That's I my agree. sense. Um, but, you yeah. know, it's. It is, but then and then you but you you wrap in the Chris Castle argument that yes, you will raise rates. It's not dramatically going to going to certainly help artists in any stretch. Um, it might help the companies, right? But it's not it's not a panacea. So it, it's yeah. yeah, so much to consider. But anyway, let's jump on to the next story, Jay. This is from Music Business Worldwide, and Ed Sheeran stream is not worth the same as a stream of rain falling on a roof. This is Robert Kinsel talking about music streaming payout and pricing models must and will change. So yeah, Warner Music Group CEO Robert Kinsel has previously stated his belief that music is undervalued compared to other forms of entertainment and suggested that a shakeup is due for the way royalties are calculated and paid out by streaming services. Yeah, I think we'd all agree with that statement. It's going to get challenging, and we'll dig in in a second, but it's going to get challenging because it's so subjective. Mm -hmm. Who's to say that, you know, this band, you know, uh, is worth more than this band? Now, I see what he's saying with, you know, rain sounds, you know, white noise for sleep or, you know, but it's going to, that's going to be a challenge. So last Tuesday on uh, Warner Music Group's latest uh, earnings call, uh, Robert Kinsel doubled down 
on these views, uh, elaborating on his proposal that music from certain types of artists, especially those who attract subscribers to streaming services in the first place, they should be paid more than other types of music. He says every stream in music today is valued exactly the same way, referring to the dominant pro rata royalty model on modern streaming services. He goes on, that doesn't seem like something that's aligned with the way the world works. For instance, in sports, LeBron James, side note, go Lakers, they won last night, uh, earns more money than some of his teammates. And not because he plays more hours per day. He plays exactly the same number of hours as other players, yet he earns more. Yeah. Offering another example of differentiated value in the world of sports, right? This time, from a streaming media perspective, Kindle said, and I quote, ESPN commands more money per subscriber per month than any other TV channel, not because it's consumed more, but because there's a propensity, a, a, a user willingness to remain with ESPN plus those other services. And with that in mind, said Kinsel, it can't be that an Ed Sheeran stream is worth exactly the same as a stream of rain falling on the roof. Calling the current dominant music streaming royalty model misaligned, uh, Kinsel said, now that the industry is healthy and has grown incredibly well, it's time to reevaluate how we're licensing to DSPs and to change the model together with them. Music cannot continue to be the only industry that doesn't assign additional value to high-value artists and songwriters and doesn't drive ARPU growth the way every other industry does. Yeah, my, my dad used to say to me, uh, our business was really out of whack in that uh, two things. One, we create a product and then we go try to create demand. That's a little odd. But the more important part that you were just kind of touching on when it gets to pricing is throughout the days, the CD boom, we would highly discount our newest, hottest CDs, um, which to a lot of people in business makes no sense. If you're a car dealer, you're going to uh, add uh, price you know, yes. to a uh, hot selling uh, or if there's limited inventory. So another way to try to raise streaming subscription royalties paid to artists, of course, would be to increase the price of the leading subscription music services. Uh, review our last story. Spotify, for one, continues to charge the same monthly price, $9.99 in the U.S., for its flagship premium subscription product as it did when it launched in 2011. And as you alluded to, that price came back from Rhapsody in 2003. Crazy. Uh, today, Kinsel pointed out that prior to joining Warner Music Group, during his 12-year stint at YouTube, the price of YouTube TV subscription grew by 100%. And that says in parentheses, YouTube's TV monthly price was up to $72.99 in March of this year. The service debuted back in 2017 at $35 per month. Conversely, the price of a standard individual YouTube music subscription, said Kinsel, has not increased by any percent since that, since that service launched. Weird. Yeah. And we talk about that because I subscribed to YouTube TV and I was not too happy when it went to 70 <laughs> double. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kinsel suggested that the root cause of certain streaming platforms declining to increase their prices was because these DSPs are not actually incentivized in the current agreements. Um, with the rights holders to do so. It's actually the opposite, he said. You know, recent price increases at certain music streamers have been successful and are a move in the right direction. But this should be just the first step. These subscription services, which have raised prices, have done the fiscally prudent thing for themselves, their shareholders, and the creative community, and there's no sign that they're seeing elevated churn. So he added, every single subscription service, whether it's fitness services or video services, has increased prices over the last five years significantly other than music. Music's probably the only industry that hasn't other than the 10% increases last year with Apple Music and Amazon Music, amongst others, raising prices from $9.99 per month to $10.99 per month in the U.S. Yeah, Kinsel cited recent research from Guggenheim Partners which proposed that if Spotify raised its U.S. subscription prices, it could bring Daniel X's loss-making company an additional $1 billion in annual revenues. 
You know, he further stated the current music streaming pricing structure was really, really good for the industry. It took it from a low point to an incredibly recurring revenue stream all around the world with massive amounts of people's payment information on file, a premium experience, personalization, all of that. Right. But but it does not mean that it's the right thing for the next 10 to 20 years. It has to change and it will change. Kinsel said that a reevaluation of the licensing structure of Warner Music Group's agreements with digital services and presuming uh, presumably altering those agreements to incentivize the services to raise prices is now one of their top priorities. Suggesting that Warner was keen to examine multiple pricing tiers and more sophisticated audience segmentation with DSPs, he said, what I'm trying to stress is that the status quo of the way things work right now is not the way things are going to work going forward. Kinsel was speaking on the earnings call with analysts following the publication of Warner Music Group's calendar Q1 fiscal Q2 financial results, which showed the company's overall revenues rose by 4.6% year over year in the quarter. Elsewhere on the call, he discussed the topic on everyone's lips, including mine and Jay's. Oh, here it is. AI and its potential positive and less than positive effects on the music business. Yeah, when, when talking about AI, Kinsel said, when it comes to generative AI, it needs to be put in proper context. Framing it only as a threat is inaccurate. Our first priority is to vigorously enforce our copyrights and our rights in name, image, likeness, and voice to defend the originality of our artists and songwriters. And he goes on saying, it is crucial that any AI generative platform discloses what their AI is trained on, and this must happen all around the world. Europe is leading by example with the EU Artificial Intelligence Act. The European Parliament is considering amendments which would codify the position of that copyrighted content may not be used to train AI without prior authorization from the rights holders and would require AI developers to disclose a summary of the materials they use to train AI. Wow. Right. And we just talked about Google's Music LM. Mm -hmm. What was that trained on? That's right. We need to know that, right? Okay, so he continued to say that, you know, as in Europe, all around the world, lawmakers are debating AI, but the primary focus has been on issues such as transparency, safety, algorithmic bias, uh, privacy protection, notice to consumers, and an ability to opt out. Last month, uh, Senator Chuck Schumer announced his intention to draft a U.S. AI bill coming later this year. I can promise you that whenever and wherever there's legislative initiative on AI, Warner Music Group will be there in force to ensure that protection of intellectual property is high on the agenda. But he goes on, however, we must also see and seize the massive opportunity that generative AI will offer. He then made an interesting comparison between the positive effects that AI could have on the future earnings potential of music rights holders and the impact that user-generated content on YouTube has had on the business in the past. User-generated content uploads soundtracked uh, by, the mu by music can be licensed for use by rights holders and royalties activated for usage via YouTube's content ID platform. Mm -hmm. Right. So on this topic, two things weren't lost on Kinsel. Uh, UGC, user-generated content, via YouTube's content ID, now generates a 10-figure sum in royalties for music rights holders every year. And the second thing, Kinsel recently hired Ariel Barden, the exec who built Content ID at YouTube as Warner Music Group's new president of technology. Right. He says, consider this. User-generated content containing copyrighted material was originally viewed as a big threat by media companies, he said. From my personal experience at YouTube, when I arrived in 2010, we were fighting many lawsuits around the world and were generating low tens of millions of dollars from user-generated content. Yeah, he also said that we turned that liability into a billion-dollar opportunity in a handful of years and a multi-billion-dollar revenue stream over time. In 2022, YouTube announced that it paid over $2 billion 
to user-generated content to rights holders alone and far more across all other content industries. He later, suge- he later suggested that uh, Barden or Bardeen and his technology team are currently working on new tech-driven products for Warner and its artists across four key areas. This is interesting. Uh, one, internal systems to promote efficiency. Okay. Two, improving uh, WMG's effectiveness as a marketer of brands for artists and songwriters. Three, widening the base of artists and songwriters Warner can work with. And four, better monetization or better monetizing the relationship between super fans and Warner artists. Yeah, he said of the arrival of Barden that uh, other senior tech-minded execs at Warner, we've recruited an initial team of A-list technologists who are unprecedented in music rights industry. We have incredible momentum with hiring more and more people of that type who want to come and be a part of what we're doing. So this is really, it's not just Warner Music Group, it's all of these music groups are hiring experts and trying to sort out how to identify things that are, you know, AI, which is using uh, their, um, their music that they have the rights to. But I think one part that's really important is we've been reading more and more lately about these companies that are also looking at ways like how can we monetize this? It's not going away. It's that Napster moment. People want to hear generative AI of certain artists And I can't help but think that it's going to get to a place sooner than later where the rights holders in conjunction with the artists, and it may be the artist's estates, Mm -hmm. are recreating works and creating new works from that body of work um, because the fans want it. So they're going to make it themselves. It's, it's It's a Napster moment. Well, but at least he was speaking certainly about the challenges, but also the opportunities. And that really is, you know, I think in the music business, there is at least an awareness now based on, you know, kind of past histories that, yes, you have to have to be very, not suspicious, but you, you have to have, you you, ha- you have to be concerned about these new technologies, but you also have to look down the road a bit once, it, once they start going and what the opportunity, the long-term opportunities are. And I think uh, good on him for saying that and thinking about that. And I'd forgotten, to be honest, when, until I saw that he was at YouTube for a considerable amount of time before he came to yeah. Warner's. I forgot yeah. about that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's there is money there. And, you know, what is there? Well, that that remains exactly to be seen. But, you know, that's it's starting to certainly to kind of show itself on how this might get kind of laid out potentially and. Like you said, there'll be an audience for this stuff. And, you know, whether it's it's things that really happened or didn't happen, the fake Drake, all that stuff, you know, kind of uh, duets or, or things of, of artists that couldn't have possibly done things together. It's there's an interest. And so I, I, I'm yeah. with you on your prediction, which is this might be an alternative uh, subscription service, something off, off to the side that is way different than what we have right now. So fun and interesting things to chat about. But anyway, let's go on to the next story, Jay. Our last one, Spotify pulled thousands of songs to fight fraud, not AI. Tracks from AI music company Boomi were removed. We talked about this last week, but streamers take down songs all the time, regardless of whether AI is involved. An alarming report circulated online in the first week of 2021. Spotify had reportedly pulled some 750,000 songs off its platform due to evidence of streaming fraud, according to an entertainment attorney who added that the vast majority of the songs appeared to have used DistroKid for distribution. Jay and I talked about this a lot back in 2021. Furious artists ripped in both ripped into both the streamer and the distributor on, on the and the distributor on social media claiming they had never been involved with fraudulent streams and they didn't know why their music had been taken down has it really been 2 yeah, years I jay since that happened my goodness time flies yeah well and i think recently um people were talking about uh boomy and that these songs were pulled down 
um, because of fraud. And that, that was a misconception. Spotify disputed both of these assertions, however, saying that the number of tracks removed was far less than 750,000 and that the music from a variety of distributors was impacted. DistroKid founder Philip Kaplan wrote, these takedowns were distributor agnostic and affected the music in uh, business uh, from all distributors, not just DistroKid. Despite these rebuttals, the initial claims continue to circulate for months. Yeah, they certainly did. More than two years later, a variation of this episode played out again. On May 1st, Boomi, which is a, is a music tech company that allows users to create songs with the help from artificial intelligent tools, posted to its Discord that new uploads were paused and certain catalog releases had been pulled from Spotify due to potentially anomalous activity. The Boomi post was measured, the response uh, less so. The company's statement was initially viewed as confirmation that AI was causing more trouble amid a wave of anti-AI sentiment in the music industry. Then the narrative changed. Uh, Spotify said the anomalous activity uh, was related to streaming fraud, not the fact that Boomi's tools rely on artificial intelligence. And then it turned out that Spotify had pulled down more music that had nothing to do with Boomi or AI due to evidence of manipulation as part of a routine sweep a few days later. So the whole incident now seems to be less about any one company and more like a natural part of streaming services, ongoing efforts to prevent fraud from impacting payouts on their platforms. And in parentheses, Spotify has consistently said over the years that stream manipulation is an industry-wide, it is is industry-wide and that it treats it very seriously. That's right. And we had Jen Mosse from Spotify on this podcast talking about that very subject. These episodes show the challenge of accurately reporting on the murky world of streaming fraud, where even the most basic information, how many tracks were impacted, what criteria were used to determine they were manipulated, and how does it compare to overall fraud levels, that's often kept out of reach by tech companies. Yeah, but combating streaming fraud is a never-ending game of whack-a-mole that takes place to varying degrees across all streamers and all distributors, and focusing on any single mole can obscure the larger context. As Christine Barnum, Chief Revenue Officer and Distributor of the distributor CD Baby, recently told Billboard, nobody's immune to this type of fraud. Boomi says roughly 7% of the music it had on Spotify was pulled down because those songs were targeted with bot activity in April, 7%. And that was uh, Boomi users were able to resume uploading new songs to Spotify as of May 5th. For comparison's sake, a Deezer executive said that last year, 7% of the volume of daily streams on Deezer is now detected as fraudulent. Merlin, which handles the digital licensing for many prominent independent labels and distributors, briefly had fraud levels at near 10% from music on the ad-supported tier of Spotify in 2020. Wow. Uh, Talking publicly about streaming fraud was once viewed as airing dirty secrets, one executive told Billboard recently. But this is changing. Leaders at SoundCloud, Pandora, and Napster all spoke about their efforts to fight fraud on their respective platforms at a Music Biz Conference uh, panel back last year in 2022. Last month, Umiati... uh, Boy, this is is a tough one, Jay. (laughs) Umiati... Uh, Onakuulu, music licensing lead uh, over at African re- uh, streaming service Modundo, I'm sorry, Modundo, wrote that looking at the music industry in Nigeria, one of the biggest problems is stream farming, which has become more widespread and prominent over the years. Yeah, this, this is a day-to-day reality of the modern music ecosystem, right? Last year, Deezer said that the company detects suspicious activity on 45,000 accounts every day. And Spotify sends regular reports to major rights holders about the level of fraud detected on their catalogs. The fraudulent play identifies in those reports uh, were caught, which means that they did not impact payouts, right? So a Spotify spokesperson noted in a statement that the platform consistently removes product designed to game the system in order to generate royalties. 
Yeah, Alex Mitchell, who's Boomi's CEO, said in an interview with Billboard this week that our review team spends a huge amount of time on that issue, which is protecting the platform from fraud. We have much stricter policies, frankly, than many other distributors. We have systems that alert us if we think something might be suspicious. And then we have an investigative process that our team will go through to decide if they need to hold the revenue or contact a DSP. We're also working with industry-leading fraud detection companies to improve our systems as we scale. Yeah, even so, anyone's music can be targeted with bots on a streaming platform. Um, Morgan Hayduck, co-founder, CEO of BeatDap, a company that builds software to detect and mitigate fraud, uh, told Billboard earlier this year that one under-discussed aspect of fraud was collateral damage caused. Fraudsters often employ user accounts on the streaming platform to stream a mix of the target's content alongside other popular artists to evade detection. He explained using bots to play you know, a melange of music from legitimate stars, for example, as well as the track that they're trying to boost. Uh, BeatDap works with Boomi, but directed questions about any anomalous activity back to Boomi. Right. So this means that even when fraud is identified, it can be difficult to determine its source. Uh, when it comes to who is responsible, it's hard to pinpoint Ludovic Poili, who's the senior VP of institutional and music industry relations at Deezer, told Billboard back in January. Distributors might say it's the labels. The labels say it's the management. And artists themselves might tell you it's the competition who's trying to negatively impact their reputation. <laughs> At a time when more platforms are openly discussing fraud, the Boomi announcement on Discord surely got so much attention because of the company's connection to artificial intelligence, a topic that currently appears to have many music executives quaking in their boots. But in parentheses, <laughs> it says people are over panicking a little bit. One music veteran, um, uh, I'm sorry, one veteran music tech executive recently told Billboard, some of that concern is related to major label market share dilution which impacts payouts from streaming services the music industry is also nervous about ai technology's potential for copyright infringement and the extent to which it could possibly replace musicians and songwriters but michael points out streaming fraud that's existed for a long time before ai was on the scene and before they were on the scene so fighting fraud was already a tech-based arms race, they said, between those who want to protect the streaming services royalty pools and those who want to extract money from them. So a French study of streaming fraud released in January noted that the imagination of hackers is rich and evolving to the mm. point that the countermeasures imagined and implemented by the platforms in the first place, but also the distributors and music rights holders must not only constantly evolve and improve but also anticipate any counteroffensive from fraudsters. Boomi summed up the situation best when it initially announced that Spotify had detected potential evidence of fraud on some releases. As the music industry continues to navigate the use of bots and other types of potentially suspicious activity, the company wrote, these pauses are likely to happen more regularly and across a wider set of platforms. It's not going away anytime soon. We talk about bots, spin farms, um, people who are manipulating streams and you don't want to do it because if you're caught, you're going to get pulled off of uh, the DSPs, number one, but it's, it's a rampant problem and it's affecting all aspects of the music business. But of course the music business has J.A., as you would know, and admit a rich history <laughs> of doing all kinds of things like this to try to one-up, you know? And and <laughs> it goes, it's, again, since the beginning. And, I, I, you know, I think we both kind of just scratch our heads when, when we see this. It's like, really, you want to risk being taken down? But yes, they do want to risk being taken down because, yeah. you know, for whatever reason, they, which they view, a lot of artists view as success or a lot of managers view as success is, you know, getting on more spins and it's right. Uh, it will never, and that stop. needs to change. You just hit it on the head. That needs to change. The fact that on YouTube and on Spotify, you can see stream counts, play counts. Um, you don't see that on Apple. You see kind of a progress bar 
And I think it would be really great to get rid of that because there's a reason why people are trying to game the system and it's not always monetary. Mm -hmm. Um, I know of people, well, it's bragging rights, but it's also, there are people who are lazy and just look at a social footprint and streaming when they're choosing artists for, let's say a festival. And so you could get, um, bumped out of a festival because mm-hmm. your streaming numbers are too low. So that's going to incentivize you to try to jack those up. But I think if you take that number away and just have a progress bar, I mean, I don't know why we need to have, oh, well, this has 400 million streams. It's like McDonald's with the sign, you know, yeah. 50 billion trillion burgers served. At, at some point, it doesn't really matter. Um, or maybe it's just something that you see in Spotify for artists or in YouTube analytics. But I think that is part of the problem. Yeah. Do you see it slowing down at all? No. No. In fact, I see it ramping up. Um, we talk to people all the time. And instead of worrying about the things that they should be worried about, which is uh, writing great songs, you know, recording great songs, playing great live shows their focus tends to drift over to, you know, how am I going to get into this festival? How am I going to get signed by a label if I don't have my numbers up? Or it comes down to those who are like, there's not a lot of revenue in, in any of the sales streams, downloads, you know, that's not where the real revenue is for most artists. Mm -hmm. Some artists it is, but not most of them. It comes from things like touring and merch and sync. And so whenever you have that incentive, uh, people are going to try to game the system. And as they said in this article, they're getting good at it and they're changing their tactics. It's like whack-a-mole, yes, right? Exactly, as soon as they exactly. they see that a certain thing isn't working, they try something else. Yeah, yeah. A lot of creative people out there working on all these things, how to game the system all the time. Well, as we wrap up this episode, hey, if you enjoy our show, please tell one friend. Yeah, Jay and I would certainly appreciate it. We also want to thank... Hypebot, Bands in Town, and the Music Business Association for helping us make the do happen. We uh, we couldn't do it. We appreciate it. Big thanks. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, thanks for everyone who listens to the show. Jay and I really, really appreciate it. We do not take it for granted, and we say a big thank you. And that's why Jay is buying drinks at Music Business Conference. Man, be out there. He he's a he's a madman with a credit card. That's right. All right. So running from people in the lobby. (laughs) I can only I can imagine that. Um, So thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.